Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. your host, Lady Justice, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And indeed, it is uh, our goal today, uh, this Saturday, and every Saturday. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone, if you are a new listener today or if you are a veteran listener um it's very uh it, it it's very um uh welcoming to have you again and please do be sure to pass this podcast on um i uh before i introduce our guest today just want to say uh greetings to Delilah my co-pilot my PR manager and my friend good morning good afternoon wherever you are and um how is everything in your world Delilah Oh, it's great. It's great, Donna. Thanks um, Thanks once again for having me here to uh, share in the information that we give to listeners through so many good expert guests, and today is no different. Um, you know, we've had Dwayne Bowers on several times, and um, he's, he's kind of like one of the group now, and each time <laughs> he comes on, he he just does such a wonderful job um, imparting information that's that's very useful in a lot of different areas. So he, certainly uh, he'll be yeah. here today too. Right, and um, uh, you know I just think he has this human touch and a way of connecting with people on so many different levels and so many topics. You know, we've had him with Jennifer uh, Bishop Jenkins. We've had him by himself on a number of different topics, and he's just you know a good friend and a wealth of information. So. Today, um, you know, uh, today we are going to speak on trauma-informed care, and um, I think people may have a general sense of what trauma is, but maybe not trauma-informed care. So um, that is sort of part and parcel of what he does. If people are not aware, just let me give a very brief thumbnail sketch, and we may be talking about towards the end of the show a lot of the different um, current projects that he's involved with. You know, he is a certified clinical uh, hypnotherapist, a licensed professional counselor, and a Reiki master. Um, He works, uh, uh, teaches workshops and seminars and courses internationally. He is also an author, but primarily he specializes in working with with, uh, families um, for children and adults who go missing. And um, like I say, he's just a plethora of information. And so we'd like to uh, welcome you this morning, Dwayne. Thank you so much for being back with us and introducing us to more needed information. How are you? Well, I'm I'm well. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy doing doing these shows. So thank you for having me again. Oh, it's 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 our pleasure. You're you're part of the family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, so just you know, drink your coffee, whatever, and we'll um, we'll kind of dive into this topic. Um, if people are unaware, or if they haven't had an opportunity to listen to a multitude of shows that you've been on with us, maybe sort of as a, a 101 uh, introduction, could you possibly give us a working definition of trauma-informed care, like what it consists of, and maybe who needs to be aware of it and who needs to be trained in it? Absolutely. First of all, the the, the idea of trauma-informed care uh, is, is sort of an idea that that uh, was promoted in this country to encourage agencies who provide human services to train their staff and and have policies in place that would um, be supportive to people who have experienced trauma. And of course. The more you I know and the more any of us work in the field, the more we realize that that trauma is prevalent everywhere. Um, Many, many, many people have been exposed to trauma at some point in their lives and can be triggered very easily. So the definition I'm going to give you is kind of agency-based, but I, I encourage anybody who's listening who might be like a practitioner or 
someone like me who is in a, a private practice, or even if you are a survivor of trauma, so that you can understand what an agency should be providing you, uh, kind of here's the definition in that way. So the definition basically is that um, services are provided from an understanding that the person you may be working with has possibly or probably been exposed to trauma and that the service that I am providing does not trigger a traumatic reaction or cause even more trauma to this client. And so even if it's not a mental health service, being trained enough to know what trauma is so that you don't re-trigger your client while you're interacting with them uh, and knowing where to refer them if, um, if you don't provide services that would help support them. The other part of that is to understand, for agencies to understand that not only are their clients probably victims of or survivors of trauma, but so are their staff. Because one thing that we know in the field is that people are drawn to work with trauma who have had trauma in their own background. And very often, um, we and I can include myself in that, we, we are drawn to the work because we want to help others so that their, their process, their experience may not have been as rough as our own or whatever. So very often, people who work in the field also have a traumatic background. So the agency needs to know... Um, be, be structured in a way that it doesn't further trigger its own staff, let alone the, the clients that come to it. So, so that's the basis of trauma-informed care. And mm -hmm. there's, there's several different parts to it. But does that kind of give you an idea? Does that kind of define it? Certainly, yeah. And, you know, what, as you were speaking, what I was thinking of, and uh, Delilah, you may recall this, um, a couple of weeks ago maybe we had a good example of this, one of our – radio colleagues, uh, Sandy Robinson-Hine, um, came on our show. She is a, a former detective from Virginia and um, hostage negotiation expert and a very personal show in terms of uh, sharing about um, this childhood, early childhood sexual molestation, which she, mm -hmm. she chose to share with us on the radio in order to help other people. And, you know, you know, it was just very compelling and very, you know, it's a, a very courageous thing for her to do. So here she is in law enforcement circles and had been carrying that around. And um, we went through the whole thing, and it, it was it was incredibly powerful, wasn't it, Delilah? It was. And, you know, it's a, it's a case where here is someone who acts as an advocate for other people who are suffering different traumas. And she herself had this own trauma in her life that she really never shared. Um, mm -hmm. Dwayne, how prevalent do you think that is in, in the world of advocacy? I know that a lot of times I see it in domestic violence advocacy and, and in human trafficking advocacy where the victims themselves have this need to give back. And Absolutely. sometimes I think they jump into it a little too quick, but mm -hmm. on the other hand, and, I, I, I yeah. think it's a noble thing. And how how effective can they be as opposed to maybe someone who has not suffered through that trauma? Yeah, you raise a very good point. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, I think first of all, as victims of trauma, we are drawn to help others. But the other side that you have to think about is, if I am a victim of trauma and I'm coming to a service, I'm going to feel much more comfortable with someone who's been where I've been than someone who um, who has the book learning but doesn't really have the experience. Uh, it's going to be much more. It's going to be much easier for me to talk to and tell what's happened to me to someone else who's been there. And they're also going to know how to ask the questions that will help me to tell the information I need to tell so they can provide the service that's necessary, as opposed to someone who has not had that experience. Now, I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying I think, I think one of the things we talk about in, in mental health is the therapeutic relationship and how important the relationship is before you even get to the intervention. I think when you're when you have staff who have had experiences of trauma themselves, your therapeutic relationship benefits from that. 
Now, of course, if they don't know what they're doing therapeutically, they could do more harm than good. But just to start, just to make that relationship, I think it it can be very helpful. You know, in addictions, um, I worked in addictions many, many years ago, and that was one of the basic rules, that if you were in a drug treatment program, the other counselors were recovering addicts because they got it and, and they understood. And I was much more comfortable relating to them than, than perhaps not. And when professionals started getting degrees and coming into the field, there was a real pushback from, from, from the addicts, uh, from the staff who were recovering addicts. Um, oh, you, you can't relate and all this sort of thing. And, and yet they were as effective in their intervention as those who had had the experience. I think the difference is in the relationship and the therapeutic relationship. And so that's where I think um, it, it benefits to perhaps have someone who's had a traumatic experience helping me because uh, I can relate to them better. Definitely. You know, that that goes for my, uh, just to do my little commercial, the victim and uh, impact uh, writing service. Um, not not to say that other, uh, the book learning victim impacts, uh, victim uh Crime victim advocates uh, do not do their job because the majority of them do it quite well. But I'm just saying that for those of us that have gone through the experience, that's a very good illustrative example of what you were just speaking of. So just want to make our audience aware of that. And thank you for bringing up that point, Delilah. I think it's it's excellent. Um, You know, in in terms of uh, trauma, can you give us a little bit of a framework in terms of the process of before we get into what triggers may be and things like that, what's the process of, of healing in a general sense um, and some of the interventions for, for the benefit of those who may not have heard um, some of our earlier shows if we've spoken about it? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, um, the, the um, I'm sorry, um, First, we have to understand what trauma is and how trauma looks. And mm-hmm. um, that... Uh, uh, that you up. brought a question? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I wasn't expecting it, that's no. all. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> actually, actually, it's part of what I was going to explain trauma-informed care to be, so let me come from that way. Trauma-informed okay. care includes that all of your staff um, or anyone working with someone who has had a traumatic experience understands what trauma is. So so let's start from there. And and trauma a traumatic reaction is is an equal amount of physiological reaction, emotional reaction and spiritual reaction. And and if you are a therapist or if you are working with somebody in a mental health environment on trauma, if you don't address all three, um you're doing them a disservice. And what we are learning more and more and more in the field of mental health is um, this this connection between the body and the mind and that they are not inseparable. So sometimes if you can't reach a client through mental health, using body interactions um, can at least alleviate some of the symptoms that they're having and then maybe they can trust you enough to start doing the, the talk therapy and the mental health interventions. So because of this, there are all sorts of interventions now that use both the body and the brain. And, and um, actually talk therapy is one of just one of many interventions and it, it really is not as effective by itself as if you add something else like EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which literally uses the body to help access the brain. And just a quick overview of that is, um, and it's considered a very effective treatment for trauma. It, it, when, when you experience a traumatic experience, uh, your, your body um, uh, produces a large quantity of, of uh, uh, serotonin. I'm sorry, not serotonin, um, cortisol. And cortisol is a hormone that is, is known as the stress hormone, and it floods your body. And what it does is it shuts down your, your um, hippocampi. You have two hippocampuses. That's your short-term memory, learning, um, and um, many of your ability to concentrate, et cetera. And it shuts it down so that another part of the brain, which is connected to uh, the hippocampi, the amygdala, uh, can function, and that's your fear center and your danger center, and that's what keeps you alive in a trauma. It, it scans for the danger. It scans for the 
the, the things that may be threatening you and put you into a fight, flight, freeze response. Well, this is a body response. Everything I've just described is physiological. And so if a person is experiencing trauma and then after the trauma they keep seeing images of their trauma or things keep triggering them, their body goes right into the same reaction that it did for the trauma. It has high cortisol level. It shuts down part of the brain. You're scanning for danger. And it causes all sorts of negative behaviors like uh, negative worldview, uh, depression, um, um, hypervigilance, uh, inability to sleep, uh, high anxiety, um, all of those things that you sort of associate with behaviors that people have, have with, with trauma. Well, if you lower the cortisol level, you actually start to affect some of those symptoms. They're able to concentrate better. The, uh, the fear and the negative worldview starts to uh, uh, lessen a bit, less intense. And so this is all physiological. This is not even a mental health, if you think about it, not even a mental health intervention. And there's lots of ways to reduce cortisol, like, um, 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 well, cortisol is reduced by the release of uh, endorphins. So things like eating chocolate or exercising or laughing or feeling good about yourself. Yeah, I I heard you picked up on the chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Well... But um, but those kinds of things will bring down cortisol levels, and then all of those symptoms I just talked about actually become less intense. Now you can start doing talk therapy. Now you can start talking about what meaning and value are you giving those images that are in your head, and how can we change that meaning, and how can we change that value so they don't affect you so negatively. So, mm-hmm. But it's a holistic therapy. approach, right? I mean, all of those things, the body, so it's not just, oh, I don't want to talk to a therapist or, no, I don't want to do desensitization or you have to do it in concert with these other things for it to be most effective. And I'll tell you what a real trick is. When you've got a client who says, no, I don't believe in mental health, no, I can tough it out, say, okay, well, that's fine. We don't have to talk about it. But I'm going to give you a couple of things to do to just maybe make you sleep better or make you feel less tense or whatever. And you give a couple of interventions that bring down cortisol they trust you a little better. And when mm-hmm. they trust you better, there's that therapeutic relationship again. Now maybe they will talk a little more. And, and being able to change that meaning and value, which is really what we do in trauma work, um, helps them then to be able to um, move forward and, and eliminate some of those um, um, symptoms. So uh, I don't know. Did that kind of answer what you Yes. What you yeah, it, it, it actually yeah, does, does help very much. Um, was thinking about uh, when you take a pragmatic approach um, to this whole whole topic of uh, what what do we need to focus on for crime victims in terms of interacting with agencies and systems? Uh, because we do throughout our day, throughout our week, um, always have to be interacting. Um, and if we are burdened already, our our bodies and our minds and our emotional health are burdened with trauma, um, what is it that we need we need to discuss so that crime victims can sort of uh, navigate through these systems to help to help them? Mm-hmm. One of the first things to be trauma-informed, to be able to interact in a positive way, is to recognize that if you have a power over relationship with your client, you are already triggering them. Remember that trauma, one of the basis of trauma is that I believe I had no control over the situation. The more I believe I was not in control, the more traumatized I am. And some, some of the, the researchers talk about inability to move. Um, and, and that can be physical, that can be emotional, that can be spiritual. But for example, in rape, uh, uh, the victim of rape is not able to physically move. And because of that lack of movement, that lack of control, it is much higher risk to be a traumatic event than some event where the, oh, I just heard this recently, actually. They talked about people who at 9-11 who were on the street and when the planes hit and then the building started to collapse. And, of course, we saw all the footage of these people running. And there was a study done of people who were on the street who were running from the event. Very, very few of them suffered from PTSD. And the reason was because they could physically move. They could 
move away. They weren't constricted. They weren't. They felt they had some control over their own survival, um, over over their reaction to the event. So anyhow, when you're looking at an agency, you want to make sure that the agency eliminates as much of the power over relationship as possible. And power over, every agency is full of power over. That's what they do. You walk into the agency and the first thing you see on the wall is a sign that says, no cell phones. That's a power over relationship. You are telling me what I cannot do. Instead of a sign that says, Thank you for choosing to use your cell phone outside. The more choice I have, the less the power over a relationship. And so one of the things we really encourage agencies and even individual therapists and individuals who work with folks to be is don't follow the rules so much. Or there's ways of following the rules that still gives the client the sense that they have some choice. And the more choice that I have, the less I feel that I I, I have that you have power over me, and the more I feel that I have some control. So I walk into this waiting room, and the, and, the, and the chairs are lined up against the two walls in a straight line. That's power over. I have to sit in a line. I go up to the uh, desk, and the woman doesn't even greet me. They just hand me the, um, the form and say, fill this out. That's a power over relationship. I may not want to give all that information. Power over relationship. Then they may give me a number and take away my name. There's a power over a relationship. So what? So if I'm a trauma survivor, mm-hmm. what what attitude do you think I have by the time I finally get to the poor worker at their desk? Very impersonal. To me? Right. Absolutely. Very, I'm well, you can you too. can almost you can almost have that same feeling going into a doctor's office and or a dentist's exactly. office Definitely. or the DMV. There's so many different places, <laughs> even regular people. You don't even have to have a trauma to be traumatized going into some of these <laughs> situations. Yeah. That's true. So, you so are you saying, saying we need Every... to be warm and fuzzy? I mean, if they just try to be a little bit more personable and sensitive, it will go a long way, Dwayne. Is that... Is that the kind of the bottom line? There, there's a difference between telling me, here, fill out this form, and saying, well, tell me, what's your name? Well, Mr. Jones, would you mind filling this out as if I have a choice? Now, I really don't. But let's say I say, no, I don't want to fill out this form. Well, then the response to that can be, okay, well, that's certainly your choice. Now, unfortunately, the way we're structured is we need this information to provide you service, but you know what? There may be other agencies that don't need this information to provide you the service. So what I'm going to suggest is here, take the form with you, and then if you can't find another agency that doesn't need all this, you're welcome to come back. Or what we forget sometimes is that sometimes people can't fill out forms. And so maybe saying, well, would it help if I sat with you and helped you fill out the form? I'm giving this person, what, three choices right here. They can leave and take it with them. They can have me sit and help them fill it out. This is a whole lot different than here, fill this form out. And and that's the idea of power over. Um, Knowing my name, rearranging the chairs so that they're in groups of conversational groups rather than straight lines because straight line is, you know, got to – uh, adhere to the societal norm, you know. So this is, yeah. and these are just little easy things. Then I come in to see the the worker, and the worker is telling me all these things that they can and cannot do for me, rather than or what I need to do to be able to get the service, rather than presenting it as a matter of choice. And you know, that example I gave was saying, well, you know, unfortunately we need this information to 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 provide you service. That's a choice. I'm actually still telling them I'm not going to do anything for you unless you fill out the form. But I'm doing right. it in a way that tells them, you have some choices here, and, and I don't have any power over you. So the idea of giving, giving the, the, the survivor as many choices as possible in their interaction with the agency helps to reduce that. Now, one of the things, and you talked about missing, I, I do a lot of work with the National Center for Missing Exploited Children and with parents of missing children. And I, almost without exception, who do you think their number one bad guy is? Well, the, the law enforcement because they don't get enough yeah. information? 
the law enforcement is always the bad guy for these folks. And it's not even the perpetrator who took their child um, because there's this feeling that if the cops were doing their job, my child would be home. But the other thing is, of course, law enforcement has lots of power over. That's what it is. It's a power over agency. And so when I come to you for help and you tell me, well, we don't have the resources or I can't give you that information or it's still under investigation, this is the extreme of power over. Of course, the anger, which is a side effect of trauma, is going to come up. And so this is why having victims advocates work between law enforcement and the victim can be so helpful. Um, uh, well, in that scenario, uh, Dwayne, this comes up so often in our conversations with victims' families and whatnot. If they they um, relate those responses that you just mentioned, law enforcement, what would be an alt? You know, law enforcement needs to be trained and aware aware of this too. What would be alternate responses for them versus saying saying what they did? You know, well, well we first can't. Of all, First of all, I kind of, I will take issue, and I, I, I work with law enforcement too, so I will take issue with they need to be trained on how to do this. I don't necessarily think they do. I think when we look at law enforcement, law enforcement has to have a certain mentality in order to do the job they do. They can't be touchy-feely. They can't allow their, their feelings to come up when they're dealing with, you know, the, the, the stuff they deal with every day. This is why I advocate for victims advocates in the, in the police department, that okay. there are people who are specially trained to translate the law enforcement language to the victim in a way that doesn't further um, uh, victimize them, um, so to speak. So, and of course, there are always times that you have to interact with law enforcement. And again, if the law enforcement person just took a moment to say things like, are you comfortable in that chair? Do you need a drink of water? Um, or when they see the person getting upset at the answer, they're saying, I know this is not what you want to hear. Why don't you take a breath? In fact, let's both just take a couple of breaths here, and then, then we'll go on with what we're talking about. When you're giving me bad information, but you're also showing that you're taking, that you have some concern for my reaction to it, my reaction right. tends to diffuse. So, to diffuse the situation, even with a comforting phrase like you're, like you're talking about, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't change the information, and I can't change the rules. There's certain things I can't tell you. But you know what? I can say to you, yeah, I know it sucks. It's not fair. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. this, these are the rules that I have to follow. And, and you know, let's, let's just stop for a minute. Let's just take a breath, calm down a minute, you know, make sure, do you need water? Do you need anything? Now, go ahead, tell me how you feel about that. But when I ask you to tell me how I feel about it, then you know what? Very rarely am I going to attack you personally. So I'm a law enforcement. I've just told you, Donna, that nothing I can do for you. We don't have the resources. We're not going to search for your child anymore. And you're livid. But mm -hmm. if I say to you, of course you're livid. Of course you're angry. I would be too. I get it. You know, let me get you some water here. Let's sit down. Let's, let's just sit here for a minute. Tell me about how that feels. Go ahead. Just tell me about it. Just let me have it. Well, because I've given you permission to do that, what are you going to do? You're going to do it. You're going to let you're it out. You're going to do it, but you're not going to do it at me. You're going to do it at the system because suddenly I have shown you that I have compassion. So you're not going to say, oh, you're the worst thing ever. You're going to say, this is sucks. This whole system sucks. You see what I'm saying? Right. Well, yeah. some, so. some people in law enforcement naturally have compassion, and maybe other people have had it, and maybe they've gotten burned out with the job, and, and yeah. maybe they've lost that ability. I mean, there's all different um, you know, uh, permutations of, of that scenario. But it, it, when does it become a matter of in dealing with uh, various institutions, and, and I work for state government, that's an example of institution, or, you know, dealing with the police or mental health agencies, where if they're not doing what they need to do, even in terms of these small changes, you we, we discussed in the phone the fact that we have to self-advocate. Now, there are those of us that can learn how to do that because we don't have a choice if the police don't have resources or whatever. But 
um, if they're already dealing with the personal trauma, is it a really hard transition for us to become self-advocates to so that we don't, you know, self-destruct and tell these agencies what we need? No, and I'll tell you what is the most supportive in most situations, and that is these um, peer support groups. For example, the National Center for Missing Exploited Children has a group known as Team Hope, which is um, uh, parents of missing and, and, and murdered children who are telephone buddies to other parents of missing and murdered children. Um, they've been there. They've been through it. And so by having this person to talk with who's had this, it lets me know that, and of course these volunteers are trained at what resources are available and whatever, but they can tell me what it took for them to become the advocate, what it took for them to start being an advocate for themselves. You know, there are meetup groups for everything. There are online groups for everything. I have, um, I've worked with a couple of mothers whose children died of overdoses, and they found just ad hoc groups of mothers whose children died of overdoses that they started attending the functions, and it really helped them to get ideas and to kind of get the courage to stand up for themselves. And even one of the other mothers would go with them if they needed them to, to kind of be a boost uh, when they went to do uh, certain things with law enforcement or other agencies. So um, it's not a hard transition. It just is a transition that needs some support. And, again, we go back to that that relationship that we talked about earlier. Having someone with you who's kind of been there uh, very often is the best support I can have when I'm trying to make a transition from being victim to advocate for myself. Um, it's a tough transition, but if I kind of have somebody who knows – the ropes and who's been there and who's struggled through it themselves, that helps me. And that also gives me motivation to know that it's worth advocating, that you can get something out of advocating for yourself. Um, right. There's, there's, powers in, there's power in numbers, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. um, just getting online and searching for, you know, groups of, of, of folks who may have the same trauma I do uh, and, and kind of connecting with them can be helpful to help me change from victim to advocate. Also, a good yeah. mental health prof- uh, professional, if, if, they're, if they've got a client, see, once I become an advocate, I'm not a victim anymore as far as a mental health point of view. It shifts the chemistry in my body and it shifts the parts of the brain that I'm using away from the traumatic response to using, one of the things that happens when I'm having a traumatic response is that gray matter actually goes dead. The cerebral cortex stops functioning. And that's our strategy. That's our comparison, our analysis, all of that stuff. We're running on hormone. We're running strictly on fight, flight, freeze. Well, if I can help a client get into planning their own advocacy or strategizing what to do next, that gets them up into the cerebral cortex. That starts using that part of the brain again, which then... Higher power. (laughs) Exactly. It shuts down the the middle brain, the, the limbic reaction, and and it gets them into a much better functioning place uh, mental health-wise. So a good mental health practitioner would also be supportive of them becoming an advocate for themselves. Yeah, well, another example, too, is that for nearly the past four years, Delilah and I have been featuring on this show so many examples of just exactly what you're talking about, stellar nonprofits who support others for various um, traumas and shattered lives. So, if yeah. as one of your tools in your toolbox, please do continue to peruse the archives because we have a number of different examples of just what Dwayne is talking about. Um, organizations and peer groups uh, in Connecticut, survivors of homicide, many other uh, other organizations that we have featured. So this these potentially could be a resource for you too. So just you know, just wanted to point that out. You know, Absolutely. so yeah. thank you for yeah. um, you know shows cementing like that we're doing good work. <laughs> Absolutely, your show and shows like yours, and there aren't too many of them. Um, uh, absolutely. That's what you do is you expose people to what's out there that can help me, that can support me. And um, it, 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 that is a, vi- a vital service to people who are victims of um, or survivors of trauma. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so kind of getting back to this idea of, of trauma-informed, 
Um, yeah. The idea of, of power over and that um, the, um, the agency should – and here's the other thing. So, um, so, so, Donna, you work for a state agency. Any right. power over relationship as an employee? Uh, well, they have a lot of power over me. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Uh, in what I do. I, I help uh, case manage a number of clients, but there's so many other ways in which, um, you know, they sort of uh, take control from what time you report in if you're a minute, well, not a minute late, but, you know, from that kind of minutia type of thing to major things throughout the entire day, throughout the whole system it's about managing it's about managing people uh because there is state government and they're so bureaucratic and again i'm speaking in general it's not just the state of connecticut i'm not bashing no, no, my no. employer here um they've been good to me in a number of ways but again if you're a person that doesn't like to entirely follow the rules and likes to think out of the box and is creative such as i i'm always being frustrated by some of these rules in state government, but yet I have to sort of play the game in order to get the job done, if you know what I mean. In order to get the check, absolutely. So, right. So, so um, coming into that with an experience of trauma, coming into that being a trauma survivor, on a constant basis you're being into a power over relationship. I mean, even right. down to having to ask, you know, when can I take a day off or, um, you know, getting permission to, to, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. But, but um, yes, that's an extreme power over relationship. So agencies that serve trauma clients but have strong power over relationships with their staff are not trauma-informed because they're not recognizing that many of their staff have had traumatic experiences and are coming in every day being triggered by by just the relationship of the of the agency to them. So that's another part of being a trauma informed agency is making sure you don't trigger your 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 staff as well as your clients. And are so, there and then, ways to incentivize them to make changes that don't cost a lot of money? Absolutely. And that's actually what I'm doing right now um, in Saskatchewan, Canada. I'm doing a lot of work up there right now as they are trying to um, uh, kind of restructure um, for the Aboriginal um, uh, folks in their area, in, in, in the province, because the government's making a lot of restitution for the schools, the residential schools and that sort of thing that happened, you know, three generations back. And, and making some retribution, and they're starting to realize that um, they need to change the way they do business in order to encourage um, not only the Aboriginal folk, but but just people in general to utilize services. And so I'm doing lots of training with different agencies up there on how to become trauma informed. And um, uh, and it only yeah. took three generations. Oh my goodness. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is. What oh. happened to the, uh, the the residential schools happened about three generations ago. Um, okay. So, Sorry, um, misunderstood. But it's, still, but it's still having, you know, the generational trauma is still having a major impact on that community. Um, uh, high high suicide rates, low employment, low income, uh, lots of drugs and alcohol, lots of crime because um, on the reservation there's not interaction, a lot of interaction with with. The, the government as a whole. Well, for the government to change the way it deals with an Aboriginal uh, population, it needs to learn how to do it in a way that's not power over because that just triggers all of that trauma that's been passed on from generation to generation. So, And the same is true in this country with our own um, Native yeah. Americans. You know, so, and you feel like you're making some headway there in terms of doing this for them? Government these government agencies really are showing that they want to learn and they want to change. And that's been really inspiring for me. Um, so I've been working both with Aboriginal folks who are providing uh, services to other Aboriginal people and also to the government agencies who are trying to open up and encourage 
these folks to come in and, and take part in their services. So it's 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 been I, I've been going up two or three times a year working with these different agencies, doing just this educating them on what is trauma-informed and, and establishing those relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, if people well, what's are happening? Go ahead, Delilah. Go ahead. I was Sorry. just going to ask Dwayne, you know, you're doing sure. so much work in Canada. What's happening <laughs> here in the States? I mean, are you yeah. are you sort of duplicating the same thing or, or are these models and programs already within the same sort of agencies that you're working with in, in Canada, or do we need to get it going here? Um, a few years ago, and, and you may be aware of this, and I'm, I'm going to say 10, 15 years ago, there was a real move in this country to make all agencies trauma-informed, particularly agencies that received money from Department of Justice. And there was actually a period of time that if you were a nonprofit agency providing human services, you had to prove that your uh, agency was concerned with being trauma-informed. You had to prove that you were providing training to your staff on what trauma was and that you were structuring in a way um, to be trauma-informed in order to receive money on certain kinds of grants. I, I don't, I'm kind of out of that now, so I don't know if that's still part of, of that. But I remember when I was working in agency 10, 15 years ago, that um, that was a requirement for certain grants. So I think I think we move in that direction. I don't think we're there yet by any means, but I think I think there's a recognition, especially on agencies that provide human services, that they deal with trauma every day and that they need to constantly be evolving to provide for these clients and their staff who have been traumatized. So I'm not saying we're ahead of the Canadian government in any way. I'm just saying that we kind of went about it a different way. Um, we went around, we, we went about it sort of through the pocketbook um, where the Canadian <laughs> government is actually passing laws and whatever to, to, to um, become more trauma-informed. Um, uh, um, Yes, it's definitely been a movement in this country and still is. Um, Trauma-informed schools, uh, in fact, have recently in in California, there was um, a major high school that decided to become trauma-informed just because of what the kids go through every day. They're they're inner-city kids and and, um, kids that were um, being exposed to trauma, either domestic violence or their own sexual abuse or physical abuse themselves. So... Um, yeah, we are we are moving in that direction. Uh, it's not talked about probably as much as it used to be, but I think we're still moving in the right direction. Dwayne, do you feel like um, there might be pockets of um, this going on more so with uh, areas such as like you know the the Sandy Hook schools now and what, what's happened in various places where we've had mass trauma and and um, you know homicide where they they've been forced to recognize this and change everything about how they operate. You know, Colorado, San Bernardino, all of these different places. Yeah, I think so. Um, Although, although when you look at some of these places, who, who is it that needs to become trauma informed? Certainly in Sandy Hook at the school, but you know, um, you know who I thought of, and I, I said this on your show before, um, certainly the parents of these children all of these folks were victims, but one of the, the sets that I looked at that I think probably did not get a lot of support, it was a volunteer fire department that was right across the street from the school, and that's where the bodies were taken to be oh, identified. Right. Mm-hmm. And these were volunteer fire people, young adults who probably have put out fires and maybe have seen people, birds, and whatever, but have never seen a room full of dead children. And they, it was their responsibility to take these parents through to identify their children. I heard of no support being given to those young fire uh, fighters who had to do that. And um, those are the kinds of things that I think we really need to focus on, too, the support people. And that's kind of where my career has gone is what support are the support people getting to deal right. with the trauma they're exposed to? You know, the, the definition or the... the, the um, Diagnostic code for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, changed a couple of years ago, and it now includes um, 
repeated exposure to adversive details of trauma. It used to be that you had to see the event happen or you couldn't be PTSD. You couldn't have that diagnosis. You had to see it happen. And now what they're saying is just seeing the adversive details of it, just seeing the aftermath and seeing it repeatedly, or they give the example of police officers that hear about uh, sexual abuse of children over and over and over again. Well, you know there are lots of folks in the mental health field that work with uh, children who have been abused and hear those stories all over, over and over again. This now qualifies as one exposure to post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, I think, yes, we're becoming, as a country, we're becoming more aware that it's not just you have we to We need to pay attention to them, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Just as, as you were talking again, another example I want to point out to people if they would care to listen. Uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, maybe a month, six weeks ago, we did a show with um, some first responders, firefighters from Charleston, South Carolina, who have a peer support um, group and are specially trained and PTSD, I believe, and other areas because they've gone through many. There was a big, uh, what was it, uh, they lost nine firefighters um, in a big fire several years ago, Delilah, right, as well as other things. So there is, yeah. there are specially trained um, firefighters that are doing this because of the repeated trauma that they have had. So that is a show that people can look upon. Um, we did a show a while back that I just repeated with Sandy Hine again, uh, and Derek about victimization, when uh, you become victimized, when you are a hostage negotiator and what you go through, what your personal trauma is. So, again, we've tried to introduce um, that these service providers become victims as well. So, again, I invite people to come back and circle back to our archives because just what Dwayne is talking about, we're trying to present sort of a 360 spectrum of who is a victim and and are they getting what they need. So thank you for reminding me of this. But, again, that show with the, the Charleston First Responders is a prime example of what you were just talking about with the, the Sandy Hook uh, people as well. So, again, well, thank you and- for bringing that up. Sure, and if I can kind of elaborate on that sure. just a minute. Go ahead. Um, like Go ahead. I said, I do a lot of work with National Center for Missing Exploited Children. One of the other things I do for them is they have a staff of about 70 folk whose job it is to, uh, let me start a different way, um, Congress mandated a few years ago that the National Center for Missing Exploited Children become the repository for child pornography found on the Internet. And being the repository, they, they have uh, all of these images and all of new images that come up on the Internet get reported to them, and, and they have them. They store them so that law enforcement has a place to come to when they're looking for a particular child victim or a particular perpetrator or whatever. And so they've got a staff of about 50 people, and they're young. They're, they tend to be in their um, late 20s, early 30s, up to mid-30s, and in many cases, this is their first job. They came straight out of college and they're doing this job. And they're watching child porn all day, every day. This is certainly exposed to the adversive details of, of trauma. And so one of, one of my responsibilities, we have what we call the safeguard program, which is the mental health support to these folks. And they come see me twice a year, uh, more often if they need it. Um, and um, when they're getting trained, they see me every month during their training, and they have a support group during training. So this is, again, sort of trauma-informed, knowing that your clients are being exposed or your staff is being exposed to trauma and, and helping them learn how to cope with that as part of their job. Well, let's extend that a little bit. So ICAC units of police departments, ICAC stands for Internet Ch- uh, Crimes Against Children, they are the cops that actually go out and, and, and arrest these folks uh, who are making child porn or trafficking children or whatever. Well, they're watching the same stuff all the time. ICAC units oh. are now starting to create their own um, safeguard programs. And the attitude that cops don't see mental health, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't need mental health, we can tough it out, is really mm-hmm. changing. In fact, again, Department of Justice is kind of really putting pressure on ICAC units 
that if they want this money, they need to make sure that they're providing some support for their staff. I'm actually working with Maryland State Police to start creating their um, um, safeguard program for their ICAC unit. So, um, so when you ask, are, are we moving in the right direction, I think mm -hmm. this is a good example of even in areas where we, we don't expect there to be this sensitivity to trauma, yes, we're moving in that direction and it's becoming part of our culture to support staff who are being exposed to um, uh, traumatic uh, situations and, and to make it okay that they're using that, that it's not a sign of weakness and that it isn't going to affect them in, in their career. Well, you know, that's really encouraging to hear and those thing, examples that we've just brought up. I mean, people are right. starting and, you know, to realize. Not to, not to, not to make light of, of these people with these types of careers, but couldn't we also apply that same principle to mainstream media who, you know, we have people who sit in front of TV all day long listening to the same tragic news and watching the the footage of it hour after hour after hour until the next thing happens. And then, you know, you have all over Facebook, and it is traumatizing, even but, if you're not but, involved in the trauma. It is. Delilah, Delilah let me, let me <laughs> clarify that from a mental health perspective. The diagnostic tool for PTSD specifically says that if you're exposed, repeatedly exposed to adversive details of trauma, except for electronic media, and one of the things that happened after 9-11 was a lot of people tried to file for claims of PTSD from seeing it over and over and over on television. The difference with those folks, Delilah, is they have a choice. My TV has an off switch. I don't know. Maybe there's done. Right. I do, I'm uh. not being forced to watch this. So what they say is, it, it doesn't apply to electronic media unless watching it on electronic media is part of your job, and that's exactly ICAC. That's exactly these folks at National Center. They have to watch this stuff on the screen on electronic media to be able to file it and compartmentalize it and mm -hmm. to be able to make it available to law enforcement. So it's part of their job. They have to watch it to have that job. But if it's your job or your livelihood or whatever yeah. in your force, yeah. so you would be eligible under PTSD, if you, if you have to do this as part of, you know, helping clients or whatever, then you, you would be eligible then. Yeah, but if you're sitting at home watching 9-11 over and over and over again. That's your choice. That, now, let me right. say, definition-wise, I cannot, I cannot give them a diagnosis of PTSD. And, right. and you know who really runs that, and I don't mean to sound negative, but, but it's the insurance company that's going to pay and if you don't meet the criteria, then the insurance company is not going to pay, right? So, right. Of um, so you would look for another <laughs> a diagnosis like anxiety disorder or something else that, that would also fit um, the reaction they're having to watching this, but not trauma, not PTSD. That does not qualify. Okay, well, very, very interesting. Uh, we have about six minutes or so um, left to our show just to, to let you know. Um, and it's always too quick when we talk to you, Dwayne. Um, <laughs> but it, in regard to um, uh, what uh, all of the things we've been speaking about and bringing it back to, like, service providers, I know we've been dealing with, uh, you know, larger institutions perhaps as, as examples, but and if they're not sort of – getting getting it and going with the uh getting with the program so to speak you 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 can have individual service providers uh maybe be making some quali uh, some qualitative differences what what have you seen um where people have been really changing their ways that maybe have really made a difference for for victims maybe on a smaller level can you give us some examples well, I think one of the things that we can we can look at is many uh, states or or uh, not federal government but smaller governments who provide human services have learned to provide them uh, sort of a one stop shop kind of idea, so mm -hmm. that because very often if a family if an individual in a family has experienced trauma that family is experiencing trauma. Even if the trauma happened on the outside to just one member, 
the fallout from that is affecting that family. So being able to provide services to the entire family at one location in a way that doesn't <laughs> cause trauma in figuring out how am I going to get there, how, how do I pay for child care, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're creating sort of these, these service centers that have child care, have parking, they can provide uh, money for public transportation, and, and they'll have uh, all the family members do what they need to do sort of at the same time. So they'll have the kids in therapy in one place and the parents another, and then after those sessions they may bring them back together for a family therapy session. So they try to work to work and maintain that idea that we're here to serve and build the family um, and that you come first and your family comes first rather than our needs as the agency. And we're seeing more of that happening as well. I did want to just cover briefly or just go through the list of if you're going to an agency that's supposed to be a human service agency and it's supposed to be supporting you as a victim of trauma, here are the things they should be trying to do for you. They should be trying to help you learn how to identify your emotions and regulate them. They should be giving you skills on how to reduce your anxiety when you're having a panic attack, how to reduce your anger, uh, stress management skills, those kinds of things. They should be... um, helping you identify when your thinking screwed up. Um, we call it maladaptive, maladaptive cognition. When you have come up with a worldview that really isn't correct, but it's based on your experience, to help you broaden that a little bit. I mean, if you've, if you've been raised in an environment of, of domestic violence all your life, that's what you think a good relationship is. So being able to change that cognitive distortion to say, no, 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 that's not a healthy relationship. Let's teach you what one is. Um, Also, uh, teaching um, uh, the client to have good um, interpersonal communication skills, good social skills, and, as we were talking about before, helping them to become a self-advocate. So your agency, if you are the victim, uh, if you are a survivor of trauma and you're at an agency that's supposed to be supporting you and helping you, uh, function. These are the things they should be focused on or some combination of these things. Uh, and if they're not, well, these, these are the things that the industry says are the most important skills necessary for a person who is a victim of trauma to be able to reintegrate back into society. So, And they need to get in touch with you if they're not. <laughs> <laughs> or a good therapist, right. <laughs> that's, that's all there is to it. Um, well, you know, I I just have to say this this is always very very informative, and um, people can um, can go back into the archives and listen to this if they don't happen to listen live. Um, can you just give us some reference in terms of if people want to read read more about the type of things that you are currently doing, or or if they want if they want some more help, um, can you give us your your website information? Sure. My website is www.dwayne.com. So it's www.dwayne.com. Right. And if you had any parting thoughts about the overall issue, what, what should... What should we be taking away as an audience today? What do you think would be the most important thing? I'm a real advocate for this reduction of power over, no matter who you are or where you are in life, quite honestly. The less, the less you try to assert power over someone else, I think the more productive that relationship can be. Um, and 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 I think I think that's probably the most important thing in your relationship with clients, with with uh, peers, with whoever. This need for a power over relationship uh, only only further develops any anxiety or any trauma that that person may have, or you yourself. And so, when you're interacting with agencies, and if you are in an agency or an agency head. Think about that. Think about how you can eliminate those power over relationships with simple things like changing a sign, changing the way the chairs are in the room, changing the way the person greets someone when they come in the, in, in the agency. Um, and, and that's true of any store even. Um, 
So I think it, it's a good universal kind of rule to have that if you establish power over relationships with folks, they're only responding to you out of the necessity of having to interact with you. And Absolutely. it's uncomfortable for them. Yeah. Very, yeah, very, very, very useful information. Uh, Delilah, have any parting thoughts? Well, I'm just, I'm, I can't wait to go back and listen to this show again because there's so much good information for uh, such a broad spectrum of people. You know, whether you're a victim yeah. or you're in this situation or whether you're a caregiver or, or an advocate, mm-hmm. um, there's just so much information in this show. So hopefully we have a large turnout of listeners. And okay. I want to just say thank you. Thank you again, Dwayne. Thank you, Dwayne. Please keep in touch, okay? Yes, thank you. Bring a lot of value. Yes. Thank you. Well, we're going to be, we'll be closing out the show. Please visit DonnaGore.com to see other offerings available to you. And it's always appreciated if you share the radio shows and my blogs and Victim Impact Writing Service. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Delilah. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.